Bibles now to John chapter 21, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And I'd like to invite you to take yourself back in time to when you were a student. For some of you, not much of a stretch, maybe a couple of days ago. For some of you, it might have been a long time ago, the last time you went to class. It's been a long weekend, and you come back to class that first day, sort of groggy, kind of not knowing what to expect, wondering whether you have everything that you're supposed to bring to class. And you're you're jarred into being awake and aware when the teacher says to you, clear everything off your desk, take out a piece of paper and a pencil. And that panic hits you, and you know what it is. It's a pop quiz. You weren't expecting it. You're not prepared for it. You can barely remember what class you're in. And now they're going to test you. It's a pop quiz, but it's worse than that. Because they say, this pop quiz is also your final exam. Your whole grade is going to hinge on your answer to this pop quiz. Answer or answers? No answer. There's just one question on this test. Oh, good. But it's a trick question. Oh, no. It's a difficult one. It's not easy. It's not. The answer isn't what you would expect it to be. And so panic sets in. You have that feeling when you dream that you went to school without your clothes on. It's just, oh no, what's going on? Well, in John chapter 21, the apostle Peter gets hit with a pop quiz from Jesus. And it's his final exam. There's only one question on the test. The simple question, do you love me? But be careful, it's a trick question. Because as Peter attempts to answer it, Jesus continues to ask it. And as he asks Peter this question, he's asking us the same question. He's coming before us and saying, it's time for a pop quiz. It's actually your final. How you answer this question determines everything else. It's more important than anything else, any other question that you'll answer. And it's not as easy as you think it is. And so here in John chapter 21, beginning with verse 15, we read, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? That is John. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
Then this saying went out among, out among the brethren that this disciple would not die, but that isn't what Jesus said. He just said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Peter, do you love me? Simple question, you'd think. But it's a little complicated by the fact, and you've heard the story, Jesus and Peter are using two different words for love. Now, it's often said that the word agape that Jesus was using, do you agape me, is a word that only means the highest form of love, sacrificial love. And phileo, the word that Peter responds with, yeah, I love you, is just sort of a lesser fellowship, brotherly kind of love. Now, that's definitely an oversimplification because when you read through the New Testament, you find, for instance, when it says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, the word that's used there is agape. That's about as low of a love as you can get. And where it says that Jesus loved, the Father loved the Son and gave everything into his hands, it uses the word phileo. And so don't believe that these are two words that are just both fraught with significance. That's not quite accurate. The point, though, is that they're using two different words. They're shifting gears between them. It's, it would be like in English if, if I said, do you love me? And you go, I love you, buddy. Go, but do you love me? Sure, love you. And, and then ultimately, Jesus coming back with, okay, you love me? Yeah, I love you. They're thinking two different things. And thus, that's the significance of this question, the difficulty of the question. Because though it's really easy to say, I love you, and though it's easy to answer, of course I love you, yet what Jesus is trying to do with Peter is to emphasize love in such a way that he's saying, are you sure? Do you really believe this? And it's a tough question when it's asked that way. And it's a tough question as he asks it of us. And we should be careful if for Peter, this is a problematic trick question. We need to make sure that when we answer that question, we're answering it honestly and thoughtfully and we're considering what it is that Jesus is communicating here because, in fact, he asks of you and of me as well, do you really love me? As we look at this question, first of all, we see that it's a reasonable question. See, someone who loves someone else has a right to ask if that love is reciprocated. And Jesus had just shown his love. Paul later would say, God has shown his love toward us in Romans 5, 8, that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus had just shown his love to the disciples throughout his life as he ministered to them for the previous three years and ultimately by his death. You remember over in John 13 when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it said that he had loved them until the end. That meant, as some translations put it, he loved them to the uttermost. He had the deepest, most incredible love for the disciples. And so it's reasonable for him to say, I love you, do you love me? Now, at the same time, we think of it from Peter's standpoint, and it's definitely a reasonable question to ask because there's reason to question whether or not Peter really loved Jesus. Peter had been one who very easily expressed his loyalty and his devotion and his dedication to Jesus. In fact, he had said, Jesus, if all the other disciples bail, I'm not going to. 
You can count on me. I love you more than they do. Oh, he had professed his love. He said, look, if they all bail, I'm going to die with you. That's how much I love you. And yet what happened is Jesus had predicted when the chips were down and when times were difficult, Peter actually denied even knowing Jesus. When asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples, he swore and said, no way. No, I don't. And so now, here he is, Jesus has risen from the dead, and it's a legitimate question to go, you know, you've always said you love me, but do you really love me? It's a legitimate question. It's an uncomfortable question. It must have been really tense for Peter. He was trying to forget his denial of the Lord. Jesus was back, and he wanted to believe, hey, everything's okay now. He's forgiven me. In fact, when Jesus saw Mary there in the garden, he said, go tell Peter and the disciples that I've risen from the dead, singling him out to let him know everything's cool. And now as Jesus is talking to him privately, their first opportunity together, it's reasonable to say, look, I know this makes you uncomfortable, but do you really love me? Have you ever been in a situation where someone was asking if you love them? How do you answer that? Oh, sometimes they don't actually ask if, if you love them. What they do is, you remember, you're on a date. You date somebody a couple times, you're hitting it off okay. Things are going well, but you're not sold yet. You're just still kind of, you know, keeping your options open. And then they say that thing that you hate to hear. They use the L word. They go, I love you. Oh, man, what do you say to that? Well, the, the relationship is going to es escalate drastically if you say, I love you too. It's like you might as well just put a ring in your nose and give up. <laughs> put a fork in it. It's done. Oh, I'm not. But you're going, man, I really look like a heel if I don't say I love you back. Oh, you've heard it, and I have too. A bunch of different ways to answer that unspoken question as someone says, I love you. And as we, like Peter, say, yeah, me too. I like you. I love you. Thank you. You know, that's not what I wanted to hear. That's not what I was expecting. It's this question, do you love me as much as I love you? Is there something happening? What's the right answer to it? Well, you might be just waiting with bated breath for someone to give you the opportunity to do it. The tougher position is when you're the one who's thinking, I'm going to say this first. And you already have a backup plan. You go, I love you. But you're watching their face, and you can, with just a split-second break, say, like a brother. <laughs> just in case, if it's not working, you, can, you always have something to cover yourself. But here, Jesus is hanging right out there open. He hung literally. And now he's going, do you love me? Uh, yeah. But Peter knew what love meant. And he certainly couldn't pretend that his love was the same as Jesus' love for him. He had failed Jesus. But it's a reasonable question for Jesus to ask. And Peter's trying to answer it, but he's uncomfortable. And it's reasonable as well for God to ask you and ask me, do you love me, really? Really love me? Now you go, wait a minute, he knows I love him. That's what Peter said. But... Do you really love him, he's saying? Is it deep? Is it meaningful? Or is it casual? 
comfortable, friendly sort of love. So he asked the question, he's done everything for us. He loved us so much that he died for us. It's not a lot to, to ask for him to then come back to us and say, do you love me? So a reasonable question. But secondly, it's also a comparative question. And that's what begins to make it a little stickier. Because as Jesus talked to Peter, he said in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Comparison. How much do you love me? Now, people have asked the question, what does that mean? What are the these? And some people have suggested that perhaps Jesus is talking about the other disciples as he pulls them aside and he said, Peter, you always said that if everyone else bailed, you wouldn't. Basically, what you're saying is, I love you more than those other disciples do. And perhaps Jesus is saying, do you love me more than the other disciples do? Other people have suggested the obvious, the most obvious meaning and what I think Jesus had in mind, and he probably gestured to show it, was, do you love me more than fishing, more than these fish that you just caught? See, if we back up in the chapter, we see what happened. The disciples were, well, they had been fishing, hadn't caught anything. Jesus is on the shore, and he says, throw the net on the right side of the boat, And when they did, they got the biggest catch they ever had. Huge amount of success. For fishermen, it was their biggest day. And as they hauled that fish into the shore, Jesus motions to the fish and goes, you had a great day, Peter. You had a great night. It was because of me. But do you love me more than these fish? And and I think that's what Jesus was saying. But for us, it might be, I know for me, it's not fish. If Jesus says, do you love me more than fish? Hey, no problem. I don't like fish. I would hope he would ask me that. He could go ahead and throw green vegetables in, and I'm looking pretty good too. (laughs) But what Jesus is saying is that which is most important to you, that which you've been living your life for, do you love me more than that? How, How important is loving me to you? How deep is your commitment to me? Do you love me compared to the way that you love anything else? It might be your job, your career. It might be your family. It might be your friends. It may just be numbers on paper and a bank account. It may be status or houses or cars or whatever, but he's going, do you love me more than these? Because you see, loving Jesus is more than just having an affection for him. It's more than just saying, he's my favorite God. But it's saying, Is he more important to you, more treasured, more valuable to you than all of these things that compete? And that makes the question difficult. Because, and again, still reasonable. Because what do I spend my time doing? Is it centered around him? What do I spend my money on? Is it things that relate to him and his kingdom? What am I really showing by the way I spend my life and my resources what matters to me? And he goes, look at all that stuff. Look at all that stuff you bought. Look at all those things you work for. Look at all those things that you protect and honor and desire. Do you love me more than those? It may be a bad habit. It may be an activity Maybe something that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing. It may even be something that came from God, like Peter's catch of fish here. But he's going, look what I've given you now. Do you love me more than this stuff? Does it matter to you the most? 
supremely, do you love me more than anything? And that's a difficult question if we answer it honestly. Easy like Peter to go, of course. But when we think about it, what are we willing to give up? Well, it's a whole different matter. And so here we see this question. It just gets stickier when you realize he's asking for a comparison. But the question is also a vocational question. Our vocation, what we do with our life. See, the disciples earlier, these guys, James, John, Peter, Andrew, they had been fishermen. That's the way they earned their living. And in those days, as in our day, your identification is so often lumped in with what you do for a living, your vocation, your job. We say to little kids, what are you going to be when you grow up? We don't mean what kind of character your life is going to reflect. We mean, where are you going to work? What are you going to do for a job? And so, when we ask people what they're worth, we're also reflecting on those things that they've achieved as a result of working for success. Success and failure for us generally means how good are you at what you do for a vocation. Now, they had been fishermen, but for the last three years, Jesus had called them to leave their boats, leave their nets, follow him. He said, you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I expect you to be valuing people, not fish to be really the center of your life, to be reaching out to others, not to be taking care primarily of yourself. And so this vocational question, because after Jesus had died, risen from the dead, they saw him a couple times, he disappeared. Peter says, there in the beginning of of the chapter 21, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, these other disciples, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. They went out, got into a boat, fished all night, didn't catch anything. As you read on, they listened to Jesus. They did what he said, and he blessed their business. They pulled in a haul of fish that was greater than anything that they had ever, 153 fish, big fish. The net amazingly didn't break, and it looked like their business was really taken off. Well, at one point, the Lord had called them away from that business. Now they decided, oh, well, that was a nice gig being a disciple, but looks like we're back to fishing. Turned back to it, and lo and behold, Jesus blessed it. He didn't say, what are you doing out there fishing? He goes, do it my way, and you'll see. I'm going to bless you. He did just that. And yet his question, do you love me? more than these, connects the fact that he has called them to be more than just people who catch fish. He's called them to be people who minister to people. And so as he talks to Peter, he says in verse 15, if you love me, feed my lambs, lambs, little babies. Feed them. Give them the sustenance that they need. And then as we go down in verse 16, he says, tend my sheep. Now it's the grown-ups And it's more than just feeding them, it's giving them direction, leading and guiding them, taking care of them and protecting them. And then finally in verse 17, feed my sheep. Give that sustenance to those that are more mature as well. And so Jesus has this calling and he's saying, you thought you were fishermen. You still have it as long as I'm with you, you're a fisherman. But I want you to understand that the drive of your life needs to be something more than that. It should be directed at my sheep, my lambs, my ministry. That's what you should be doing. Now, let me make this clear. 
Jesus wasn't telling them, don't fish. Not even don't be fishermen. That wasn't what he was saying. And we don't know this, but probably during at least a part of the early church, these guys were probably still fishing. But they were fishing in a different way than they ever had before, delivered from that fruitless going through the motions and not catching anything, to having Jesus bless what they were doing and, and realizing, as John did earlier in the chapter, when he saw they caught all those fish, he goes, it is the Lord. Look at this. God's hand is in it. But now Jesus is telling them, this isn't what you live for any longer. Oh, the apostle Paul was someone who remained a tent maker probably his whole life. That's what he did to earn money to support his ministry, but Paul saw himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, someone who was sent by God, and these guys were to see that and understand that too if they were going to love him. It didn't mean necessarily quitting their job. What it meant was seeing that as just the means that God would use to allow them to tend and to feed his little lambs, his sheep. And so this vocational question is, Do you love me enough that your life goal is going to be more than just accumulating assets, than just gaining more things, experiencing more success? Or can you see what you do as just the means by which I'm going to allow you to make a difference in the lives of other people? See, sooner or later, if we love him, we have to come down to this question of, Why is it that he has given us what he has given us? Is there a way that what he has given me, that what he has given you, can be used to feed his sheep, to minister to his people? And what were you born to do? Why did you come into this world? Is it to to give to others or just to take everything that you can get, to accumulate all that you can, so that if you're really successful and God really blesses you, you can spoil your kids rotten and ruin their future. Is that what it's about? Is that what's happening? Is that what defines success in our lives? Or is it to say, God, you've blessed me. Man, look at this. Now, what can I do for you? What can I give to you? How can I be involved in your ministry? I don't believe that every person as a Christian is called to be a pastor. I don't. I don't believe that being a pastor is the pinnacle of the spiritual success chain. That if you get spiritual enough, you end up being a pastor. And I've known a lot of guys who tried to become pastors for that very reason. And God was calling them to do something else, and that's fine. And yet, I believe that for every Christian, our true vocation is to serve God where he puts us. To be used by him and to use that which he gives us in order to bless others. I do believe that. If you hang around pastors very long, you'll realize they are not a cut above In some ways, they're a cut below. I had a college professor one time who said, Dave, pastors are like manure. He said, if you stack them all together in one place, they just make a big stink. But if you spread them out, they'll do some good. (laughs) And that's true. If you hang out with a group of pastors, you'll find that out very quickly. But God has called you. Only if you love him. If you don't love him, you're off the hook. But if you love him, he's saying, what are you doing to tend my sheep, to feed my little lambs, to make a difference in their lives? 
Now, I'm tempted to jump into a guilt trip about that children's ministry seminar right now because it's like, yeah, I could reel it in. And we could. You have to hear from him. But what do you really do for a living? Maybe God's called you to be a mom. And as a result, in that role, you're seeing an opportunity to, to feed little lambs. And that's a, that's a great thing to do. But is God broadening your perspective beyond just your family? Maybe you're called to sort mail in a mail room or to deliver certain things or to manufacture widgets or to sell services or to whatever it is that God's called you to do, to build buildings. But he has something more in mind than that. And if he blesses that, it's because then he wants to tell you, he's going to whisper in your ear. As you're sitting there going, hey, it's been a good year, he's saying, Okay, do you love me? You love me how much? Do you love me enough to, that you realize that you'll decide that your life is devoted to serving my people through what you do? You love me that much? Oh, it's an uncomfortable question. It's easy even when you're in the ministry, formal ministry, to begin to serve someone other than just what God is calling you to do, to try to please people and do what they expect to try to make sure that you say and do the right things. But ultimately, that call of God on all of us is the same. If you love me, then realize that the purpose of your life is to pour it into others, to give to others. Now, finally, it's also not only is this a reasonable question, and it is reasonable, not only is a comparative question, how much? Not only is it a question of vocation, how are you spending your life, but a disturbing thing that we saw at the end of the discussion between Jesus and Peter, it's a sacrificial question as well. As he told Peter, you've pretty much done what you wanted to do, but the day is going to come when somebody is going to take you, and you're going to be stretched out, and they're going to send you a place that you don't really want to be. You'd rather not be there. Jesus went first. He sacrificed himself. But now as he told Peter, your love for me, if you express it fully, it's going to cost you a lot. It's going to cost you dearly. And it would for Peter. Ultimately there in Rome as he was sentenced to be crucified. Peter learned his lesson. At this point he hadn't got it yet. So when Jesus said, you're going to be stretched out, his first thought was, how about John? Is he going to be killed too? I don't want to die alone. And Jesus said, that's none of your business. But finally, at the end of Peter's life, being filled with the Spirit, having God working in his life, he sacrificed himself. He allowed himself to be given because he knew that's what he was born for. Jesus had told him, that's how it's going to end for you. But Peter said, I won't die like Jesus did. I don't deserve to die the same way that he died. So flip me upside down. Crucify me upside down. And so, in fact, that's what happened. Now, if Jesus is talking to you and talking to me and saying, do you love me? The bottom line is this. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice of yourself in order to love me, in order to take care of my sheep? As David said at one point, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. And so for us to flippantly say, yeah, I love you, 
without thinking about what it may cost us is to miss the point, is to flunk the pop quiz, is to fail the class. Because the truth is, God is calling us to give until it hurts. God's calling us to do things that may be enormous sacrifices. Jesus once was outside the temple, and there were guys who were giving large amounts of money, but they were very wealthy guys. And there was this little old widow who was giving less than a penny. And Jesus said, do you understand? She is giving more than these rich guys, these big bucks guys, because they can afford it. For them, it's like throwing a tip on at the end of an expensive meal. But for her, she's giving everything that she has. And so, as there you are in the light of Jesus, as he's talking to you and to me and saying, do you love me? He's also saying, are you willing to hurt? Are you willing to give up? Are you willing to sacrifice? Do you love me that much? Well, those of you who are mothers understand somewhat the sacrifice of love. Because you desire, maybe you don't desire, maybe the pill doesn't work or something, but you, all of a sudden, here you are, you're having a baby, and you're going, wow, this is amazing. Or maybe you're going, no, this is terrible. And one way or the other, you're going to have a baby. And it's kind of a mixed bag while you're pregnant. You get a lot of attention, but you hear a lot of the horror stories from people. And as you're waiting for that first child to get here, you really, I mean, it's a nice thing that the childbirth instructors lie to you and tell you that it's going to be one of the deepest psychic experiences you'll ever have. Because if they told you that it was like driving a truck through a small opening and ripping it apart, you wouldn't want to do it. And so, oh man, I'm sure it hurts. I've been there. It hurt me just watching. I don't know why they don't just still just knock you out and take it out. But but they don't because we've decided somehow it's something that we should all enjoy together. Thank you very much. And, <laughs> but it hurts. It kills. And yet, a moment later, there's that baby in your arms. And you're looking at that child and you're just going, I can't even imagine living without this baby. And it's a good thing because that baby's going to ruin the next 40 years of your life at least <laughs> until they're old enough to support you. And... You're going, what? I'm putting myself through all of this. Why? Well, it's because of love. And you make that sacrifice. And as they get older and become more expensive, and boy, that day when they want to move back home again, and, you, and you're just like, huh. But you really wouldn't say, I wish they weren't born, because of love. And so for every opportunity that we have to give, for everything to which God calls us. It's that kind of a thing. The best love, it always hurts. The best commitments that we make, they always cost us a lot. But the payoff of love, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. It gives us an opportunity. And so often, we sacrifice a little and we receive back so much more blessing than what we could ever envision. This and tonight, if you come out, we're going to talk a lot about our missions trip. But I was thinking when I was over there in Cambodia, and we were in a little village where some of the people that we support have developed, built a little school in the middle of the worst slum you've ever seen. These people have built little shacks. Some of their houses for 10 people are, are smaller than some of your SUVs. And, and here they are 
living in a dump. It's literally a dump that's piled up and they build these little things and kids are unhealthy and having a tough time and yet here right in the middle of the dump as we walk through there, there's this little preschool where these kids get to come and come to school and learn and learn about Jesus and play on the playground and they get a healthy meal and they get vitamins and they learn to brush their teeth and it's like you can stand there and see lives changed right before your eyes. And as I was walking through that dump, all I could think about was, I wish the people back at our church could all come here and take one walk through here to see what it is that's being accomplished by the money that you've given to make a difference in somebody else's life. To be able to realize, I promise you, if you could know how much good a dollar can do, you'd think twice before you spend it on other things sometimes. And yet... It's love and it's rewarding and it's a payoff and you never once feel like, man, we're throwing our money away over here. It's a privilege and a blessing to be able to help and when you hold those little kids in your arms, you go, oh, this is life. This is so much more significant than all of the whining and complaining we do at home about stupid little things. These are lives being saved and lives that'll enter heaven. Because somebody has a chance to sacrifice. Now, for that to happen, we've had to send a lot of money over there. Not only that, much more than that. Some of our best people, some of the dearest people from our church, we've had to let go of them and send them over to do it. And yet you go over there and you see it. And it's amazing. And all of a sudden, you don't feel like it's a sacrifice anymore. I really, frankly, didn't want to go on the missions trip. I never want to go away. I like being here. And I went in obedience to the Lord, but it, it was a sacrifice. It's, it, was not, it wasn't like a vacation for me, really. But at the same time, once you get over there and you see what God's doing, you don't feel like, oh, poor me. I'm going to miss the final of The Apprentice, or I'm going to miss the... Yeah, it's, like, it's the furthest thing from your mind. I know it was The Amazing Race. Thank God for TiVo. But... <laughs> You don't even think that. You don't feel that. I feel like I am the most blessed person in the world to just be here right now, seeing what God is doing, making a difference for other people's lives. Sacrifice, yeah, at first. But it's not such a big sacrifice when you see the, the love that you're able to, to communicate to people and give. One of the gals that went with us, Cheryl, has two weeks vacation every year, only two weeks. 50 weeks she works, two weeks she's off. And every year, those two weeks are spent off in some God-forsaken place ministering on missions trips. That's a sacrifice. She could be laying on a beach in Hawaii, or she could be plunging through dust over in Cambodia wondering where the landmines are. And she makes that choice, and it is sacrificial. Pays for it herself and gives up her vacation time. But I'll tell you, like when we're at the orphanage and I see her holding a brand new little baby in her arms and see the look on her face, I've never seen that look on anybody on a beach in Hawaii ever. It's different. And people who do that, who make those sacrifices, discover a reality that people who won't sacrifice will never discover. It's probably why in the church there's a handful of people doing most of the work. So often the same people who are working in this ministry also do this one and show up here and give there. And it's like, 
It's not because we're running the church on a handful of people. It's because when you give sacrificially, you discover this is great. This is the best thing I could do. This is better than fishing. This is better than spending. This is better than accumulating. And all of a sudden, you look at the life that you have, and you go, this isn't so great. It's not much to give it up. When we were up at the orphanage in northern Thailand, which has been going for a long time, and they have kids of all ages there, kids who have grown up through through the program, found the Lord in the orphanage, and now come back and work with the kids. And watching those kids loving each other, ministering to each other, somebody told, Sean told me that, Sean Dodd said that last time after bringing some pictures of the kids, he showed them to someone and they said, oh, doesn't it, want you, doesn't it make you want to just adopt these kids and bring them back to the United States? And he said, no way. They have so much better life than we have. Oh, they aren't rich. They don't have anything. They don't live in spacious Wonderful, you know, having all the toys and activities. No, no annual passes to Disneyland there. I mean, we took 50 of those kids on elephant rides. Somebody from the church here gave us some money and just said, do something special for the kids. So we were able to take 50 kids on their first elephant ride. Our kids would ride on elephants, and they'd think that was cool for a while, but then they'd go, where are the other rides? Sorry, this is the only ride we have, just elephants. That's it. <laughs> Welcome to a Thailand amusement park. If you want, you can walk through where they've been, and that's an adventure as well, but you can't miss them, though. It's pretty easy navigation. But, you know, you look and you go, oh, what a sacrifice. Hey, there's no way. I mean, I guarantee that person who gave the money just, it was like $250 to send 50 people on an elephant ride and a boat ride, too, to get to the elephants. I guarantee if they could see the look on the faces of those kids, they would, they would know I've never spent a better $250. That's, I got more enjoyment out of that than anything else I could do, they'd say. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's going, Peter, I've called you to something that's so incredible. I love you so much that I'm going to give you the chance to sacrifice your life if you really love me. And again... I don't take the question lightly. I don't exhort you easily and just go, come on, you just need to sacrifice. Let's take another offering. Ushers, come for... Now, now this is something that you need to think about long and hard. Pray about very seriously. But Jesus is asking you and asking me in a very pointed look with a very strong and committed approach. He's saying, do you really love me? And as he says that, he's asking you to compare Do you love me more than whatever else it is that you love, whatever else it is that you value? He's also, as he's saying, do you love me? The the idea behind it is, well, do you love me with your life? Do you love me enough to sacrifice? Can you shift gears and decide the reason I live is to tend your sheep, to feed your lambs, to make a difference in your people's lives? Is that something that you can answer? Is that something that that we can respond to? Let's not be sudden. Let's not be so quick to go, of course I love you. Not easy to answer. Answer it quickly, you'll answer it wrong. John would later describe similar kinds of feelings as he said, 
If you love me, obey me, Jesus said. The ones who obey him are the ones who love him. It comes from obedience. John, as he witnessed this scene and recorded it and wrote it down, later, years later, as an old man, as he had devoted his life to the Lord, it cost him, he was boiled in oil. But he just wouldn't cook. They took him out. He was probably badly scarred. Ends up being exiled over on Patmos. Has a dream that turns into the book of Revelation. And then as an old, old man, ready to die, he can't communicate any longer. They would bring him out before the church. They would carry him out in a chair, sit him in front of the people. And he looked out at the people and he said, oh, my little children, let's love one another. That's all he could say according to church historians. That's what it comes down to. That's what matters. And Jesus is speaking to you and to me, and he's saying, really? Love me? It demands a response. And that response is something that I hope you don't answer too quickly. Because I don't know what your answer is. But I know that God is going to be speaking to you if you're his child and saying, You need to think about what loving me means because I have plans for you. There are things I want to do through you. There are sheep, lambs that need to be fed, that need to be tended. And whether or not you do what I've called you to do depends on whether or not you really understand what it means to love me. Let's pray. Lord, we know you love us. You proved it. But frankly, like Peter, when you keep staring at us and repeatedly saying, do you love me? So often we bleedly just go through life and don't know what you're talking about and say, of course we love you. We sing songs to you. Of course we love you. We give 10% to you. When you may be asking for much more, maybe much less, desiring our lives, desiring that we would have the commitment that you would be the reason we live and move and have our being. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts personally about what it means for us to love you. You deserve to ask the question. You loved us first. 